0: and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock A Badlands is a production of Amazon Music and Double Elvis. The stories about Carrie Fisher are insane. No stranger to drugs of all kinds, she dropped acid in the desert with Paul Simon, got high on ayahuasca in the Amazon jungle, and was attacked by a giant snake that may or may not have been real. She did so much cocaine that legendary party man John Belushi told her to ease up. Her mood swings were such a dramatic part of her personality that she gave them their own names and her personality was so galvanizing that it became an avatar for real-life resistance fighters. And Carrie Fisher made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Victor Orchestra performing Dollar Princess Waltz in 1918. I played you that clip, because I can't afford the rights to a sample clip from Gareth Edwards' Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And why would I play you that specific slice of Death Star blueprint cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on December 23rd, 2016. And that was the day that Carrie Fisher boarded a plane for the last flight of her life. On this episode, acid trips, ayahuasca, cocaine, and a princess turned leader of the resistance, Carrie Fisher. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season seven, Hollywoodland. desert stretched far into the horizon. The sand was pulsing. It swirled in geometric patterns that disappeared every time she tried to lock her eyes on it. Her fingers crept up to her neck until she felt them make contact with something hard. An iron collar clasped around her throat. It weighed heavily on her back and shoulders. From the collar extended a metal chain that kept her shackled to a huge, scaly beast. She felt powerless and exposed, her nearly naked body on display for all the strange and shadowy creatures surrounding her. Yet despite her fear, she held her head high. She would never let this hideous monster break her spirit. Although she was young, she was the daughter of a queen. Even in her darkest moments, she could always fall back on a certain regal pride to sustain her. Now she felt her greatest fears surrounding her and she refused to succumb to them. She was nervous, but she had a feeling something magical was about to happen. Her body tingled in anticipation, and then an explosion of light and noise. Her brain could scarcely make sense of what was happening as chaos broke out all around. As she watched smoke curling into the desert air, she felt her fear and hesitation melt away. She had been a prisoner of this monster long enough. In a burst of energy, she leapt up and swung the chain tightly around the mammoth neck of her captor. She wrenched it backwards with every inch of force her small frame could muster. And the fear from moments ago was replaced by a powerful wave of euphoria. It surged through her body like an electric current. She was free, free of the weight that had kept her shackled for so long. As the epiphany crested through her consciousness, she heard a muffled sound behind her, unintelligible at first almost like a cassette tape speeding up and slowing down until it finally settled. After a few attempts, the words finally clicked in her mind. Carrie, Carrie, I think the the ass is kicking in. in. The initial wave of LSD-induced hallucinations began to recede. Suddenly, Carrie Fisher felt a moment of clarity. Geometric patterns continued to flicker around the campfire in front of her, but she realized she wasn't on planet Tatooine. She was in California's Mojave Desert. She looked down at her hands, and her knuckles were white. She relaxed her grip on the imaginary chains she had so vividly hallucinated moments ago. She looked back at the brooding smuggler sitting across from her. He repeated himself, ''Carrie, I think the acid's kicking in.'' Lost in thought, she could only nod her agreement. The guy wasn't her Han Solo, of course. This smuggler didn't complete the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. He came by conventional aircraft. But tucked away in his carry-on amid his books and guitar strings and clothing was a tiny vial. A vial of liquid LSD, cooked up by legendary acid chef Owsley Stanley. And the man who brought it to her was Paul Simon. When Paul called a few days earlier, Carrie was excited to hear from him. They'd had a nasty fight before Paul left on a solo tour and hadn't spoken in a couple of months. Now she was eager to repair the damage and possibly even deepen their connection. So she asked Paul to bring the vial that she'd left in a nightstand of a Central Park West apartment. And now their schedules had aligned for a few days off between films for Carrie and the preparation of Paul's upcoming Simon & Garfunkel reunion tour. Carrie knew the perfect thing to do, rent a place out in the desert trip balls while the feelings of peace, love, and universal connectedness washed over them, cementing their bond forever. It would be hard to find a drug Carrie Fisher hadn't tried, but LSD had a special place in her heart. By 1982, she was pretty much always running on a steady supply of cocaine and Percodan, one to keep her up and going and one to mellow her out. Both were useful and a necessary part of any actor's diet in the Hollywood of the early 1980s. But the psychedelics always seemed less like a drug and more like a religious experience. The first time she dropped acid was in New York in 1977. It was a revelation. She found herself casting aside the weight of old grievances and grudges, and she felt light and free. Her burdens dissolved, and the feelings didn't dissolve when the trip was over. The good vibes radiated for days or weeks at a time. She felt at peace, like she could finally lose her rich kid blues. Carrie's deep bouts of sadness were something she couldn't talk about with other people. There weren't many others whose very birth was a tabloid sensation. Her mother, Debbie Reynolds, was a bona fide silver screen legend. Her father, Eddie Fisher, was one of the country's most popular singers until he blew up his marriage to hook up with Debbie's best friend, Elizabeth Taylor. And that scandal ruined his career. So while Carrie grew up among the Hollywood A-list, standing in the shadows of her mother's megawatt shine, she wondered if she'd ever be an A-lister herself. That maybe she was too ugly, too gangly, just too plain weird. But that was before Star Wars. Jordan Lucas's sci-fi blockbuster was a runaway hit, and Carrie Fisher was suddenly a star. People were always telling her how great her life must be. And they didn't know about the lonely nights growing up with both parents on set or on tour for weeks at a time. And they didn't know how many times she and her brother had waited for their dad to come pick them up for a weekend, only to have them no-show again. And they didn't know what it was like to get pulled out of high school at 16 because your mother wanted you to sing in her Broadway musical. The drugs helped with all of that. Carrie was sure of it. If she could only get the proportions right, Lately, she was worried that popping 20 Percodan a day might possibly not be the best long-term move. She brought it up with her therapist. She was relieved when the therapist told her no. She didn't have a drug problem. However, the therapist continued with near-perfect comedic timing. The drugs may not be her problem because he was pretty sure that Carrie was bipolar. Carrie chuckled at the time. How cute. This therapist giving his A-list client an easy out on her obvious drug addiction. She left the appointment determined to cut back on pills and powders. That still left the LSD, which Carrie hardly even considered a drug. Back in the desert, an ecstatic feeling of love surged through her entire body. She and Paul Simon were laughing uproariously. They watched the smoke from the fire drift away into the desert air. The fire began to burn low, one of the logs shifted, sending a few stray embers flickering upward in an arc. They came to rest on Carrie's jacket. The embers sat there for a moment, glowing, turning from orange to red. Suddenly, her jacket ignited. Carrie and Paul continued roaring with laughter, and the flames got bigger. They intensified, edging closer and closer to Carrie's legs. Paul was the first one to snap out of it. He realized what was about to happen, that Carrie Fisher was about to be swallowed in flames. He jumped up, grabbed the coat, and smothered the flare up. This was one trip that wouldn't end in disaster, but it was far from the last wild trip Carrie Fisher would ever take. The question hung in the air, as heavy as the velvet curtains that shut out the rest of the world inside this Georgetown restaurant. Carrie Fisher jiggled the ice in a glass and took a sip of Coca-Cola. Excuse me? Across the table sat what passed as American royalty. It was a rare night when Carrie's pedigree was outshined, but who could compete with a Kennedy? The Senator was looking at Carrie with a mischievous grin on his face, the tip of his nose bright red. Faint outlines of gin blossoms circling the drunk's cheeks. With that unmistakable family jawline, Ted Kennedy calmly and clearly repeated the question that had brought the ordinary humdrum conversation of the three couples around the table to a halt. So do you think you'll be having sex with Chris tonight after your date? Chris was Chris Dodd, the junior Democratic senator from Connecticut. In 1985, he was at the tail end of his first term. Carrie was in Baltimore for a few months filming the miniseries, Liberty, when a producer friend set them up on a date. The previous year had been hard. Carrie's short-lived marriage to Paul Simon had imploded. Towards the end of the relationship, her mood swings were so strong she gave them names. Roy was the wild one who liked the party. Pam was the introverted depressive. Eventually, the chaos of living with Carrie's unpredictable moods became too much for Paul, so he left. Carrie stumbled down some dark paths after that and was only now ready to get back out there. Her date with Senator Dodd had started pleasantly enough. He drove her around town and showed her the Supreme Court, the US Mint in the Capitol building. He wasn't exactly handsome, but he was charming and the conversation was easy. Or at least it was until Carrie made a fool of herself. She forgot how it had even come up, but somewhere along the line, she was forced to admit that she didn't know how many senators there were, Her cheeks flushed, she hated to admit it, but her lack of formal education bothered her. She was bright, she was well-read, but as a high school dropout, there were gaps in her education, things everyone seemed to know but her. In 1973, Carrie's mother, Debbie Reynolds, finally divorced her second husband after he'd burned through nearly all of her fortune on gambling, booze, and prostitutes. She was 40 years old, well past her expiration date in the eyes of the Hollywood system. She relocated to New York in order to revive her career, and she did so with her first Broadway show, Irene. A 16-year-old Carrie made her own debut that same night as a member of the chorus. The show ran for over a year, and except for a semester at drama school, Carrie never resumed her education. Sometimes she wished she had, like now, fuming over her faux pas as Senator Dodd pulled the car into a parking spot. He looked over at her and let her know that they would be joined for dinner by another senator, one who was familiar to those with even the shakiest grasp of senatorial procedure. The very married senator, Ted Kennedy, arrived with an appropriately demure blonde who wasn't his wife, and along with Carrie, Chris, and a third older couple, they were ushered into the restaurant's private dining room. The two senators held court, discussing recent legislation. The red wine flowed. Conversation continued. And when the Senator's beepers buzzed three times, red wine was replaced by gin and tonics. Three buzzes meant no return to the floor for the evening. Carrie held tight to her glass of Coke. After her earlier embarrassment, she was determined to listen quietly and just absorb what these politicians had to say as they found their way through their fifth and sixth cocktails. Carrie was convinced she had been all but forgotten until Kennedy, with that mischievous look in his eye, popped the question that brought the evening to a screeching halt. Carrie was taken aback. Did she think she'd sleep with Chris tonight? Her eyebrows raised in surprise. Her mind went blank. But just for a second. Refusing to be shocked, she looked the senator directly in the eyes, coolly took a sip of her drink, and said, No, I probably won't. Thanks so much for asking, though. Why not? Are you too good for him or something? No, no, Carrie assured him. It's just, well, you see, I'm newly sober and I can't imagine falling into bed with someone I just met, even a Democrat, without being loaded. The energy in the room tensed up. Everyone was looking at her. Sober? Was she joking? They were pretty sure she wasn't joking. And while she didn't know the table and explanation about her newly sober lifestyle, she gave it to them anyway. It happened like this. After wrapping production on Woody Allen's new film, Hannah and Her Sisters in New York, Carrie returned to California. She'd been in Pam mode for far too long, and she was desperate to feel good again. She got home and called her friends. She told them Roy was back in town and he was ready to party. And party they did. Carrie tore through the weekend. Coke, pills, acid, anything she could get her hands on. One of those things was sleeping pills. After being awake for four days straight, She took a bunch of those pills to put herself under. It was effective, almost too effective. She woke up in the emergency room as they were shoving a tube down her throat. They forced her to drink activated charcoal. And after that, she checked herself into rehab. I don't really have a problem, though, she concluded with a straight face. It's all just research for a book I'm writing. It was Ted Kennedy's turn to share with eyebrows raised. Determined to regain the upper hand in the conversation, he pushed her further. Acid, huh? You ever had sex on, Acid? Their conversation had become a high wire game of chicken. Carrie knew she would never back down. Oh, of course, she responded. Although Acid's not really that great for sex, you know? Or then again, maybe you don't. She delivered that last sentence with a wink. Now the floodgates were open. Kennedy pressed her on her parents' divorce, her marriage to Paul Simon, her drug use. Every question he lobbed up, she slammed back in his fat face with increasing force. She pulled out all the tricks, even singing a show tune from back in her chorus days. And in the end, the Senator was forced into a stalemate. The conversation gradually meandered back to more bland topics. All that was left to do was pay the check and go home. On the way out the door, Ted Kennedy gave one final half-assed attempt. What about in a hot tub? Would you have sex with Chris in a hot tub? I'm no good in water, Carrie said. And then she walked away without looking back. Alone in her room that night, Carrie reflected on the evening. She couldn't help but feel dismayed. She thought that sobriety would finally bring her the peace that had eluded her for so long. Now she felt more out of control than ever. And while she was glad she could deliver a well-deserved verbal beatdown to a pompous windbag, She was afraid of how the monster inside her could come out so easily now without the drugs to dull her senses. Carrie continued her journey into sobriety over the next year. She chronicled it in a masterful debut novel inspired by her experiences. Postcards from the Edge became an immediate hit and topped the New York Times bestseller list. She eventually adapted it into a movie starring Meryl Streep, a process that would pave the way for an unexpectedly long second career as a writer and a script doctor. It wasn't long before Carrie and Paul Simon were talking again, too. Neither one could resist the magic connection they felt when things were going well. The drugs made things impossible, but now that they were out of the way, perhaps a couple of star-crossed lovers could write a happy ending. Or maybe the monster inside Carrie would come slithering out once again. Carrie needed answers. She boarded a plane that would take her deep into the jungle, and what she found there would change her life and her relationship with Paul forever. We'll be right back after this word, 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 word. The healer held out a cup of thick brown tea. The couple drank down the pungent liquid. The evening sun sank into the horizon as the liquid began to take hold, and the healer began a long incantation in an unfamiliar language. His voice was rich and deep. it filled the room then he motioned for the weary travelers to fall onto a rustic shack behind his home he led them inside to a small room covered in rugs and pillows where he invited them to sit and make themselves comfortable he looked deep into the couple's eyes he could sense a deep sadness and then he stood to leave but before he did he turned to address the couple that sat inside and with the help of an interpreter he said soon The anaconda will appear. Do not be afraid. Follow it, and you will find your answers there. Earlier that afternoon, Carrie Fisher and Paul Simon drifted with the current as their boat floated down a remote stretch of the Amazon River. Lush greenery lined the riverbanks as far as their eyes could see, and their guide pointed out howler monkeys in the trees and black caimans along the riverbank as their boat neared the small village where they would spend the night. The crew tossed a rope onto the small wooden dock and began to tie up the boat. Carrie realized that now in the summer of 1989, her relationship with Paul had officially been going on as long after their divorce as it had before their wedding. The marriage itself was an 11 month long blip. But their on again, off again romance had been a 12 year affair. They first really connected in 1978 when Carrie hosted Saturday Night Live. Paul was on hand at the behest of his new buddy, Lauren Michaels. Once he met Carrie, all the other not ready for primetime players melted away. Carrie had never felt so in sync with someone. Her mind moved at breakneck speed, undoubtedly aided by huge volumes of cocaine, jumping from topic to topic. Paul could keep up with her stride for stride, when things were good, that is. The problem was when things were bad. The problem was when they fought and Carrie ran off for days or weeks at a time, swallowing God knows how many pills and snorting God knows how much coke. After one particularly nasty split, Carrie went on a week-long bender while she was filming The Blues Brothers. When she came to, she found herself engaged to her co-star, Dan Aykroyd, while Joliet, Jake himself, John Belushi, was telling her she should probably dial it back a bit. She never did marry Elwood Blues, She did, as always, return to Paul. Her marriage to Paul was equally impulsive. and They married after a horrible patch in 1983, when they were convinced things were over. The prospect of moving on made them both so sad that they decided to get hitched instead. A year later, amid Carrie's escalating drug use, they filed for divorce. After the divorce and a stint in rehab, Carrie channeled her feelings into that spellbinding debut novel, and Paul took solace in the joyful sounds of South African street music. His blockbuster album, Graceland, and Carrie's book were released within a year of each other. A year in which they found themselves back together. When he wasn't touring and she wasn't on a film shoot, they nested in a Central Park West apartment or in Carrie's bungalow in Beverly Hills. But that alone time was hard to come by. That's why Carrie was now in this remote section of the Amazon rainforest meeting up with Paul, who was in Brazil working on the Rhythm of the Saints, the follow-up to Graceland. The couple stepped off the boat and prepared to walk the short trip to the village where they would spend the night as part of their three-day excursion. One of their deckhands mentioned that in this small village lived a well-known brujo, a spiritual healer. Would they be interested in visiting this brujo? It would be a revelatory experience. Now, inside the brujo shack, Paul lay his head in Carrie's lap. She stroked his dark hair as the ayahuasca tea increased its tight grip on her. She turned her head to look where the brujo had left, and now she saw a long snake slithering into the room. The huge, scaly beast looked to be 14 feet long, at least. It got closer. Carrie's stomach leapt into her throat. This was a vision, only a vision. She told herself it wasn't real, but the snake began to wrap itself around her. It sure as hell felt real. It pinned her down, She couldn't move. The snake began to spout tentacles. So many she lost count, each one pushing her down to the ground. She tried to scream, but no sound would come out of her mouth. She tried to squirm away, but she couldn't even raise her arms. The snake wrapped itself around her, tighter and tighter. The tentacles began to wriggle. This one was Paul. This one was her parents. Fame, drugs, her mood swings, Pam and Roy. Each one of these things a tentacle of the cold-blooded beast. The beast she had tried to tame with cocaine and painkillers. The beast she had tried to kill with LSD. The beast she thought would vanish with her sobriety. After fighting it for so long, she could see clearly now what she had to do. Stop fighting. She had to surrender herself to it. Carrie's vision stretched on into the night. As she gradually came down from her vivid hallucination, she found herself still stroking Paul's hair. She looked deep into his eyes and knew it. It was finally over between them they found their way back to the river together. The river led them to Rio and then the airport. And when they landed in New York, they went their separate ways, this time for good. A few months later, Paul memorialized that wild trip in the song, She Moves On. Carrie did indeed move on. She wrote a thinly veiled novel about their relationship called Surrender in Pink. She met someone else and had a daughter in 1992. She also finally accepted the fact that she was bipolar. And with the help of doctors, she slowly dialed in a medication regime that seemed to work. And she went public with her diagnosis on interviews like Primetime with Diane Sawyer, where she used her trademark wit to describe the disease and eviscerate stigmas around mental illness. The interview also helped cast her in a new light. For decades, Carrie Fisher had been Princess Leia. That was it. That role, that franchise, that skimpy gold bikini. That was it. Now the public was finally getting to know the real Carrie Fisher. She was blunt. She was brutally funny. And she was open about her struggles. And she was relieved. Sure, every once in a while she dreamed about donning Leia's cinnamon bun hairdo one last time, but that was something from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or so she thought. December 23rd, 2016, Carrie Fisher was exhausted. She grabbed her carry-on bag and boarded the plane. She was worn out from a grueling week in London and wasn't looking forward to a long, uncomfortable flight, but she couldn't wait to see her mom and daughter. She'd talked to them both just a moment ago and they were already setting the holiday table in preparation for her return. She smiled just thinking about it. 2016 had been a whirlwind. Carrie Fisher had a laugh at the thought that she, at 60 years old, was back on the upswing again. A year earlier, she'd reprised her role as Princess Leia in the long awaited Star Wars sequels, and a whole new generation of fans fell in love with the tough talking princess. No longer young and lithe, but now a battle hardened commander who earned her wisdom and had the scars to prove it. Off screen, she was quickly becoming a hero to women everywhere for the fearless way she stood up to the newly elected president, Donald Trump, on Twitter and in the press. Quote, Trump speaking his mind isn't refreshing, she wrote. It's appalling. Coca-Cola is refreshing. For women across the country looking to have their voices heard and their message amplified, Carrie's combative attitude was even more refreshing. The girls who once dreamed of being Princess Leia had grown into women who now dreamed of being Carrie Fisher. In addition to her acting career, Carrie never stopped writing. Her latest memoir, The Princess Diarist, caused a sensation when it came out earlier in the year. In the book, she hilariously skewered stigmas around mental illness and sexism in Hollywood, but it was grabbing attention for a more salacious reason. The revelation that during the filming of the first Star Wars movie, she and Harrison Ford had engaged in a brief affair, something they'd both managed to keep secret for nearly 40 years. That's why Carrie was in Europe. She was finishing up the final leg of a promotional tour. In addition to book signings and media appearances, she managed to squeeze in filming scenes for an upcoming British television series. And Carrie being Carrie, she also burned the candle at both ends, hobnobbing with fellow celebrities and old friends in London the night before she was set to fly back to LA. Maybe it was her busy schedule. Maybe it was her aching body. And maybe Roy had simply come to town for one last rollicking romp. But during her time in London, she'd fallen off the wagon. She resorted to old habits to get through the grind, a bump or two of cocaine during the day and at night, some opiates to level things out. Now, as she settled into her seat on the plane, Carrie plopped her emotional support bulldog Gary in the seat next to her and pulled a small box out of her bag. She glanced over at her assistant across the aisle, and then she opened the box. She pulled out one of a dozen or so gel cap pills. It looked the same as all the others, but this one was different. You had to know it was different. Carrie knew. This one contained a tiny dose of heroin. With a deft practice motion, she looked out the window, flicked open the capsule, and snorted the tiny amount of powder inside. She pulled the blanket over herself and settled in for the 11-hour flight as a warm feeling coursed through her body. By the time the plane reached cruising altitude, her spirit was already beginning to ascend even higher. No one noticed anything wrong until the plane landed. They rushed her to the hospital where her body lingered for four days. On December 27th, Carrie Fisher was pronounced dead. A few weeks later, Carrie's longtime friend, Meryl Streep, accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes. It was only days before Donald Trump would take office. In her speech, Streep railed against the misogyny and racism of his campaign. She concluded her speech with a quote from her friend Carrie. Take your broken heart, make it into art. Somewhere in Mississippi, a young graphic designer heard the speech. Carrie Fisher was a lifelong hero, And in her grief, she fashioned a simple design. It was an image of Princess Leia with the words, a woman's place is in the resistance. The design immediately went viral. Two weeks later, millions of women marched on Washington and state capitals across the country in the largest single day of protest in American history. And that image of Carrie Fisher was everywhere. The resistance was reborn. It was a fitting tribute Once so good, it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan and produced by Double Elvis credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at BadlandsPod.com subscribe, follow, like rate and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere if you love this show, tell someone tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Double Elvis